I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me. Hello. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and I also write an advice column. Whenever I research my pieces, I get to speak to various highly knowledgeable experts, and I always come off the phone buzzing with everything I've learnt. These conversations usually happen in private and have to be cut down in order to fit my word count. But here, for the first time, you have a chance to listen to the sort of conversations we have in much more detail and depth. Before I had my own teenager, I currently have one teenager and another one is on the flight path, I'd heard such terrible things about teens that I was really dreading this stage in my own child's life. I think ignorance makes it really easy to demonise. Plus, on top of all this, my own teens weren't easy. For this podcast, I'm going to talk to child and adolescent psychotherapist Rachel Melville-Thomas, who's a member of the Association of Child Psychotherapists. I wanted to talk to her because she has 25 years experience and also is able to explain what's happening in a teenager's brain and apply it to everyday situations and behaviours. One of the things that always really annoys me whenever anybody talks about teenagers is that you hear from a lot of adults and not teenagers. I was really keen to remedy this, so I also interviewed quite a few teenagers for this podcast. We'll hear some of their points of view throughout. Through the column and through speaking to people like you, Rachel, one of the things that really changed everything for me was learning that in adolescence, a teenager's brain changes. And that actually explains a lot of their behaviour. And I think that was the beginning for me of really understanding teenagers. Yes, it's funny, isn't it? How we, I think because they're older and bigger, we think they're more adult. And that's probably where I would think we as parents of teenagers and teachers of teenagers go a bit wrong because you expect them that they're tall and walking around and sound like they're making a lot of sense. And then how come is it when you present them with an idea or ask them to do something, they don't behave as you would expect another adult to do? Yeah, well, that was one of the things that I learned, which is that I can't remember if it was you or one of your colleagues taught me that um, teenagers are like giant toddlers. Adolescence is all about separating out, isn't it? It's about flying the nest eventually and gaining independence. But there are times where they're quite needy and that's quite you have to constantly sort of reevaluate as a parent what's going on. Yes, you do. And the toddler bit is because it's very straightforward. Think about your toddler, your 18-month-old, two-year-old, very much wants food, 
wants their own way, sleeps at odd times, uh, is very imperious, really. And then when you look at an adolescent, you see some of those themes coming up again. Oh, and mess. Let's throw mess into the picture, too. So I think that's a useful start, really. They also can become really quite clingy at times because I'm guessing as they're learning to become more independent, that's that process can be quite frightening for them. Yes, they are on a very good and developmentally correct trajectory, which is to leave home. That's what you're supposed to do as a teenager. But it's obviously quite anxiety provoking and you have to leave the comforts of home and mum and uh, and being provided for so that 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 can have in different teenagers that can be different. You might find yourself with a teenager that is out there, just wants to leave. Don't stop fussing. I'm out of here. Or you can have one who really wants to hang around and stick very close to you and, and be a bit hesitant about those new steps. And uh, do you know what? I think you see that early on as well. So going back to, to toddlers and three year olds, I often ask parents, how did your teenager manage nursery? You know, were they the person that shot off into the play area and started doing stuff with sand and plasticine? Or were they the ones that were not so sure? Sometimes we see the roots of how adolescence is negotiated all the way back in those early years. That's interesting. So you think that might be some indication. So a reticent nursery goer might be reticent to leave home as well? I think so. I I think there can be a a definite, I I do believe in temperament, personality. Every individual is themselves and uh, we don't follow a kind of template of what's expected. Like you're a teenager now, you should want to be going out to festivals or going on the bus by yourself. Not necessarily can be that each person's different. And it's just about helping a parent's view of the child and how the child is to link up, really, to, to match those things. Yeah, I think that it's very important, you know, if you've met one teen, you've met one teen. <laughs> they're still they're still individuals. And I was definitely born a grandmother. I mean, I tried to do the going out thing. And the moment I was old enough and confident enough to say, I really don't like going out clubbing. I want to stay home was a really great day for me. And so I wasn't typical at all in that way. Rachel, if we can go through some of the changes that happen in the brain and then look at what behaviour that may dictate and how we can help support teens, what do you think is the first neurological thing that might change in adolescence in a teenager? I think the first thing is to, it's just to, to, for all of us to say to ourselves, teenage brains are not the same as our brains. This is very simple. Because as I said at the beginning of our chat, um, I think we assume they're the same. That this is the most fundamental problem I come across is why doesn't he understand? Why won't she listen? Why, what doesn't she get? That, that it's those kind of questions. And you say, well, because they're operating with different sets of tools neurologically. The very first thing I would say is the balance between um, the parts of the brain that help you to go, go, go and advance out, as I said, on that trajectory to get out there and do something and be driven by more uh, stronger feelings, maybe being a bit annoyed about something. And then the the opposite, the other bit of the brain, which is about slowing that down, thinking, weighing up things, making choices. And one, the, the go part is the amygdala. That's a little body in the brain which um, controls our fight flight response and also is responsive to hormones. And the other bit is your frontal lobes, your prefrontal cortex, which is the bit that is the balancer. Now, very simply, I like to think of it as the amygdala is like the accelerator 
and your prefrontal cortex is like the brakes. So you and I, as ad adults, might think, oh, I've just had enough of this lockdown I'm, or whatever. I'm going to, you know, just go out there or I'm going to drink half a bottle of wine by myself. And the frontal lobe says, no, that's really going to hurt you. In the, that's not going to be a good idea. Don't do that. And so, so your impulses are, are moderated by the thinking, rationalizing, balancing bit of your brain, which is, carries what we call the executive function. So it's the things you carry out. Brilliant. It works so well for adults. And, we, you know, most of us, I should say. <laughs> uh, so you can argue with your adult friends about whether somebody's, you know, being sensible or not. But in a teenage brain, the accelerator, that the amygdala has way more influence on their behavior than the brakes part, the frontal cortex, because guess what? The frontal cortex isn't finished yet. It's not actually completed. And, it, and this is the really bad news. It's not completed till about your early 20s, let's say 24, 25 years old. Sorry, everybody, there we are. When you're standing with your 60, 15, 16 year old, it's quite hard to recall that they are operating with different sets of wiring, if you like. In teenagers, the amygdala is, is much more powerful. Is that what you're saying? Yes, it is. Your amygdala can be influenced by sex hormones, of course, which are wishing about like mad, aren't they, for your early teens and yes. in, in early teens. The amygdala has to be the thing that pushes you out there, that gets you going away from the family. You remember you were saying at the beginning, it's a natural um, the, the separation issues about wanting to leave home. You need an amygdala to go, go on, try it, go on, go out there. And, and so we do need that to, for, for a teenager to fulfill their potential. I think as mammals, we are the ones that stay with our parents the longest the parents are meant to fulfill the prefrontal cortex role for a bit longer. Well, that's, that is actually what happens. That is what, what is required of us is to be the brakes, to be, to be the people who say, now steady on. But it's also because neurologically, same thing as in, in toddlerhood. If you look at an imaging of toddler brains, it's just like a forest of black network. It looks like someone scribbled all over the page. Mm -hmm. And what happens in that early period sort of between 18 months to about three is that they get pruned back. There's too many to prune them back, prune them back to get a nice operating brain. And the same whoosh happens in adolescence. So there's over proliferation of these networks and then they get pruned back. And I think they also, even really complicated, get myelinated, which is a bit like insulating wire. So it works better, you know, so that, so that you're the brain connects better, so you can make sense of things better. What annoys me is probably when they constantly ask us about our futures and not taking interest in what we're doing right now um, because it makes us feel like what we're doing right now isn't good enough and we're only... we. We always have to be thinking about our futures that we need to do in our jobs or education. And it's just quite irritating because we wouldn't do the sort of, you know, the vice versa. That's just not how it works. So why should that be applicable to teenagers too? When they say, uh, how did you have a good day rather than how was your day? It's quite suggestive and it implies that you need to have a good day for it to be a successful one. What's a typical scenario that someone might bring to you where it's the fighting, if you like, between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex? 
what gets brought to me and my colleagues as psychotherapists is, is young people who seem to repeatedly get into situations where where they they are combating not just themselves but their parents as well because they are wanting to do something that push to drive to want to do something and it could be staying out late or it could be using substances or it could be having the wrong friends or it could be not doing their homework is a drive and then the parent says but you know that you have to do your GCSEs, A-levels, something, something, and the, which is a front frontal lobes, you know, that's a breaks kind of comment. And the teenager just can't kind of toggle between those two decisions or rather the impulses. And what happens is, and this is a fascinating aspect actually of the, um, of the teenage brain, is it actually misreads parental expressions. This is fascinating. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of research about how do teenagers interpret your face and they're not very good at neutral expressions. They're not very good at looking at the nuances between your cross face and your I'm trying to help you here face. So they might look at a, a parent saying, but you know, you have to study and say, oh, you're always picking. You just look what you know, when, when teenagers say what, what, when you're mm-hmm. looking at them completely straight faced because they are misreading and most likely interpreting negative and aggressive communications from you. So that they're more likely to see it as a threat, even though you're, I'm your nice, helpful mum, your nice, helpful dad. Uh, they're more likely to, to perceive danger and threat, and then they blow up. And then the adult says, "You're so unreasonable. What's the matter with you?" The parent is made to feel very helpless and out of control, and frightened sometimes. I'm smiling, Rachel, because I recognise this. Now what I've said with really important conversations with my own teenager who's 17 is I say, what have you heard? And sometimes it's radically different to what I've said. On several occasions with my parents, for example, wanting to to get an answer out of me in regards to sort of my future after school, whether I wanted to go to college um, and if I did what I wanted to study. um, And it was the constant barrage of questions. But the fact of the matter was, I just didn't know at the time. I wasn't sure. Um, I hadn't really thought about it in my head. Um, So what that ended up doing was, you know, it ended up frustrating me because if I'd told them exactly what I was feeling at the time, which was I wasn't sure what I wanted to do or I wanted to go, with the constant asking of the questions, I just felt like it would have, you know, sort of displeased them, really. That that was the fear at the time. Can you just tell me why would they interpret it more negatively than positive? What Why would that be? Well, I think it's because if we have imagined that the parts of the brain, like the amygdala and other parts as well they're already slightly hyper vigilant for things that might be a bother because here we are we're going out I'm actually 14 I feel like a child but I actually want to be older and I'm not sure what I should be doing so already cortisol and stuff is whooshing about in the brain that says be alert be alert be alert so we're we're not alert for happy things you don't look out for somebody praising us we look out for somebody criticizing us and that's likely to be what you are going to see. So so as a parent, you say, OK, this is a person on alert. The first thing is to realise the states of mind that everybody's in. That is, you have a teenager who's upset or, diff- or feeling feeling mostly anxious. Again, that's another rule of thumb. If someone's being annoying, if they're being aggressive, if they're being controversial, sort of shouty with you or gloomy or grumpy with you, 
90% of the time, they're anxious about something. So that it's that. So if you say to yourself, I don't have a rude, angry child. I have an anxious child who is turning it around into this fight flight thing. Right. But if you can just start by saying they're in a state and I need to somehow get them into a state where instead of the amygdala and other more, you know, their other reactions and behaviors that are about defense can be lowered a little bit, then we might be able to get that perfectly functioning frontal lobe. I mean, it's there. It is making decisions about homework and friends and what shall I watch on telly tonight and things like that. So to operate a bit more, you can get it back in. If you had, I'm sure you never get into these situations <laughs> with, with your children, uh-huh. but let's just take something sort of fairly typical homework and they start blowing up. Oh, you're always having a go at me. Is there a phrase that you could, that you might use or people might use that they can just keep in their back pocket to say, to calm down that situation? Yes, it depends on what situation you're in. So if it's if it's already accelerated, so someone's, you know, thrown down something, stormed off, the, the first thing I would think of is that the state they're in is unlikely to be shifted by words, by frontal cortex stuff. By, in other words, oh, come on, you know you should do this. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll help you. All that sort of talky stuff is very unlikely to get through if someone is in full fight-flight mode. It just yeah. isn't going to work. So you know your child. What does work? And it's and I would pick out of the smorgasbord of nonverbal stuff. Now that could be that you just sit down next to them and go, oh, and you make a kind of sympathetic moan, you know, sigh, I'm oh sorry, this is it's all rubbish, isn't it? Something like that. Then you say, Would you like a cup of tea? Or shall I bring you a hot chocolate? Or I'll get you some you, you do food. Food, think of toddlers, right? Mm-hmm. Biscuits in the supermarket. And when you're in full tantrum mode, you say, now, if we get up, you can have this biscuit, right? It works. So it, because it is sub or, you know, pre-verbal, you're going to anything pre-verbal shifts the state of mind slightly. The next thing I would say it is what I call parenting on the back foot. And that means don't say, I'm not, don't you speak to me like that, young lady, or that's just rude. Your father won't be happy about, I don't know, all this kind of traditional stuff. Yeah, 1950s parenting. Yeah, we don't do that, parents. Rachel. Well, no, do you know why we do it? It's because in extremis, our own parenting, being parented experience whooshes back in. And all you can think of is your mum or your dad or maybe a grandparent or an uncle or somebody, an aunt, saying those very 1950s things. Because, and this is so interesting, about how a teenager makes you feel. They make you feel helpless. So you scrabble around for anything. And what you come up with is this rather tattered, tired cliche yes exactly so we're not going to do that i'm quite confident with my children but i've had a lot of therapy i might say what what do you need that makes them think or sometimes i'll say do you need a hug what works for my children might not work for others but those are some really good tips was there anything else um about shifting from the you know trying to calm situation and bring more perspective in you know what you need is a great thing to say i don't know maybe your mum or your dad but i don't actually know what to do at this point so I actually say that so I say I'm sorry but I'm being a real dummy here but what have I missed or I'm I'm sorry um I this is obviously very upsetting but I I'm not getting it so help me out here it's like I'm the idiot so you place yourself not in the knowledgeable parent adult I'm in charge and I know things but actually I I I say I'm sorry I'm not getting this help me out and it's okay and that's okay not to know as a parent absolutely really is and also because adolescents if you think about their self-esteem being sometimes quite fragile, so they don't need anybody 
telling them what to do. They need somebody to say, I'm listening. If they begin to say, ah, it's just biology is such a trial or Liam has let me down again or something. You don't say, oh, but it'll be all right. You don't comfort them. You don't instantly fix it. You say, and this is my magic phrase, is tell me more. That's my magic phrase always. You just say, tell me more about that. So just even saying simply, how do you feel about that or about this can help. When you ask a question, you make you make sure you want to know the answer. You make sure that when you get that answer, you listen to it and act in a way which is beneficial to the other person. Obviously, don't patronise. What else goes on in the brain? Well, there are other bits that are playing their part too. I suppose the other thing that we come up against is a bit called the ventral striatum, which I think that's the other part that's useful for everyday thinking. And that's to do with pleasure and rewards and, and the dopamine um, production. So part of the brain is saying go, another part of the brain is saying slow down, another part of the brain is saying where's the buzz, where's the woo, the, the woohoo kind of part that actually wants excitement and a thrill. Uh, and we hit that because we live in a digital age and I know all of us, me included, come across the result of gaming. Gaming and online excitement is, is largely where this happens. But it can also be, hap- you know, you can get it from riding your skateboard backwards. Some people, they get it from exciting relationship situations, danger, slightly dangerous, dodgy situations. Anywhere we get a buzz, that means that the the teenager is going to be more excited by the reward the immediate reward they get than consequence which is why you say you're on your bike it's why you answer a text on your phone rather than looking at the traffic because the reward of the ping the dopamine buzz you get from a ping on your phone is more compulsive to a teenager i mean it, it does it to us as well but hopefully as adults we might pull over on the bike or the car to answer something they don't because it's it's a real push what motivates them what where they get the pleasure from where's the buzz coming from is another very useful thing to think about because as parents as anybody working with teenagers we've got to decide there's got to be somewhere in their lives where they get it somewhere but it's just somewhere that doesn't harm them i guess so you pick your battles with teens indeed allow some experimenting really and i think be able to if you go back to this business of talking if you can talk to your teenager when they're in a situation of calmness and what they need and when they they sort of because like you say they'll, they will go out but they'll always want to come back i i think when somebody comes back let's say later than they're supposed to and they're looking a bit worse for wear and they're looking a bit miserable i'm not sure that's the right time to lay into them about deadlines and curfews and whatnot I, and to tell them what a disappointment they are I, I i think you've got to wait till their frontal lobes come back into play and that they're like okay and you say you know what what happened last night that wasn't such a great idea do you want to tell me how that how that came about so they can give you some coherent narrative of it because i think to going back to this my mantra which is all teenagers are more vulnerable than you think then let them get to a level playing field before you do lay down the law about some mr you know something that's broken your own house rules in some way 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You mentioned gaming, and I know that screen time is a really hot topic between a lot of parents and their children and their teens. I've followed your advice in the past, and we always talk about these things when we're calm, and I say things like, you know, I'm worried about your eyesight. I mean, I'm a total technophile myself, so I can't really tell them off for screen time. A lot of people struggle with gaming or any kind of screen time, and it, that hits into what you were saying about the dopamine receptor and the rewards. And for a lot of them, it's really important. Do you have any advice for those parents? First of all, to acknowledge that we haven't had to deal with it, that we are floundering because it just wasn't there. I think there was there so much research about the negative effects of television on the brain. We can say shed loads about that, but we really don't understand this interactive thing that our teenagers are enjoying. So. First of all, to think about the context, you know, you mentioned perspective. What, why are they doing it? What does it, what gap does it fill for them? Because the, the buzz that the, the dopamine hits that they get from using their phones, from gaming, etc., are filling in for other things that perhaps that they they are missing outside. And it might be that they're not getting out as much, or they, or they're having a. You can look at it this way. They're getting a dopamine hit in a safe environment. That is your sitting room or their bedroom or something. So they're, they're actually safer than they would be roaming about trying out interesting stuff with people in the nearby mall or the wreck or wherever they go. The other thing to say is that most parents are very worried. They use the word to me about addiction. Now, I think my rough anecdotal guess would be most families do not have addicted teens that the, uh, and the addiction studies about gaming and screen use are 
often you know seem to come up with uh, problems with young people mostly boys young men between the ages of 18 26 who are a, a sort of at work and a, or, or not at work and able to game from morning till night all day it's very very extreme it's not going to school coming home doing your homework and then playing a lot of Fortnite. that is not addiction going back to the thing about adolescents being quite vulnerable if you are a fairly anxious adolescent not maybe not great at socializing if you go and play Fortnite, it's fantastic you can be this incredible super body you look great you leap over things you pulverize the enemy um, I've sat and watched <laughs> alongside games and I think, wow, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And secondly, as an agent, you feel invincible. Who as a teenager wouldn't want that? I mean, it makes perfect sense. And in that respect, I would say to parents, sit down, say to your teenager, sorry to be a real bore, but I just need, uh, you know, I just like to watch a bit of this with you. Or can you show me how this works? so that you you actually get engaged because most parents who complain about it to me have never ever really watched it it's so tempting not to do that and just demonize it again out of fear again i would say what does it you know what does it provoke in you but actually when you learn about it um you know i mean sometimes when i'm really stressed i want to go into my own world on the screen and um so i really do understand what that's like and i think that that for me that's a great advantage in my parenting it's not something that's scary or alien that's the hardest part for a teenager at that age growing up is to really know what is what's going on in your head to figure it out yourself so give them the space and then sort of you know go in slowly as such you know just sort of have a general conversation and I think doing an activity as well with your child can help a lot um do something that they like get them at ease um, and then, you know, the the conversation should hopefully then flow going on after that. So it's just making them feel comfortable, at ease and not putting too much pressure on them. You really don't want to build defences between parents and teenagers because they'll stop talking to you. And also, if you don't pick your battles and say no to everything, then it becomes meaningless. And, you know, I think if they know that you're reasonable, they're more likely to listen about when you do say no, would you say that's true? Absolutely, I th I think so. That they, they, it's about being reasonable and seeing several things. The big picture for them. So, how important is it that they had attended a party with some friends where they've been feeling on marginalised for a while, but they were got invited finally? So, look at the big picture rather than your kind of watch tapping concern at home. It also depends where it's the driver, isn't it? It's like, is it because and I think some of us uh, want them to adhere to the rules for th for their sake. And some of us, and this is where that 1950s parent comes, creeps back in again, wants them to adhere to the rules because the rules are the rules. And because we as adults feel calmer and safer if all the boundaries are absolutely locked tight fast and held. And if they're breached, we feel very anxious and discombobulated. So that's actually not about the teenager. That's actually about us. But the next day when everything's recovered and they've had some tea and coffee and toast and woken up at 12, you then say, what we, how are we going to figure this out together? So a little bit more collaboratively, uh, what, what happened? How would you like it to be? Is there, is there a way that we can figure out some sort of middle ground here? And that, I think, works. We can't always be with them in the moment, but afterwards, pick a calm moment and 
look at what happened, why it happened, and maybe give them tools to think about doing it in a different way. Because obviously sometimes that behaviour could put them in danger. I'm thinking of, you know, I think statistically teenagers are more likely to have car accidents. And I know that's a really big worry for parents. So maybe, you know, talk to them, but when they're calm, like you said, not when they're in the heat of the moment. All of the way we deal with all of these different brain changes are influenced by what we remember and, and what we recall in the past and how we how it, it comes back to us. And and I think that there's something something to, to be said about what was your teenage life like? What happened when you were a teenager? When I'm dealing with parents, I find a big disconnect often between them dealing with their teenager now and their own teenage life. So I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that, something about reflecting on it or thinking about it, just like what happened to you. So it might be that if you were completely shut in, not allowed to do anything, etc., you were frustrated, but weirdly, you think that's sort of how people should, you might think your teenager might need that. Or the reverse. But how you respond to it really depends on what you're like. So if you grew up and you felt rejected, you will see rejection, I think, in everything your teenager does. And unless you've done work on yourself, then you can't separate out what's your stuff and what's theirs. And I, I'm i very lucky in the job I do. I speak to people like you all the time. I've had a lot of my own therapy and I have learned to separate out insofar as I can. I still have flashpoints though. And then I have to really think what's about me here and what's about my child, my children. And also the other thing I have to think about is what's my agenda you know, what am I afraid of? Because I think a lot of parental problems that I get brought to me are not so much about what's happening now, but what they're afraid it's going to turn into. There's a lot of projection with parents. What might a parent look at in a situation that helps them separate out what's their stuff and what's their child's? What do you see in therapy? Are there sort of recurrent themes? Well, you, you said it very well, I think, that... that... Um, there's all kinds of projections going on and, and you, what, what do you expect from your teenager? So you can expect, sometimes people just aren't ready for adolescence at all. They're just not on, that doesn't seem to be on their radar at all. That really great when they were babies and toddlers, it was great. And then they were five and it was wonderful. Then they were seven and eight and they were clever and they liked rules and they did learning and reading and they knew about geography and all sorts of things. And then they hit, then, then the hormone effect on your beautiful 10-year-old is devastating. I mean, it's devastating to some people. So they just, the first thing is to say, it's okay to say, I've really lost here. <laughs> I really don't know what I'm doing here. I was fine when they were 11, but now he's 14. I haven't a clue. That's fine. Because then we can all help each other and people who have older children can, can help you. And I, one of the things I was going to say about the, the, the ventral striatum, the buzz and the pleasure seeking thing and, and how to manage that, use the wider community so if somebody wants to do something exciting or a bit whizzy or amygdala driven, maybe they can a do it or even talk about it with another adult. So that's why we have sports coaches and people who are teachers and family members and friends. I am absolutely wedded to the idea. I mean, it's a terrible cliche, but you know, the village to raise a child, village to raise a teenager absolutely we need everybody we need friends i can remember even with my own child being much younger wanting to climb trees and things and i'm thinking oh good grief they're going to fall out of a tree and another mother just 
with several boys saying, I don't look, they'll all be fine, just don't look. So I didn't look and nothing happened, nothing at all happened. It was really about my anxiety. So I really borrowed from that other parent, their calmness, their confidence, and actually, you know what, it was all fine. So we can do that as teenagers as well. Teenagers. The problem is, this is a massive problem, we lose contact with parents of adolescents because we don't go to the school gate with them. That's a, it's a single factor that destroys parental community raising of, of kids. Uh, so you're gonna have to create it. Now, I, had, I personally have a, a friend who said, hey, how about we go to the pub or have a cup of coffee or something and talk about uh, when do you want your child to be back at night? What's your views on alcohol? What do you think about contraception or whatever? And they actually sort of force created a bunch that have hung about through a long period of time. And it has been invaluable. You know, that sort of 1950s parent, they, they don't respect their teen and yet they res expect respect back. They expect their teen to do exactly what they're told, but yet know their own mind when it matters. Whereas I think a child knowing their own mind needs to be nurtured quite early on. And I think that there is sort of shame, competitiveness, maybe when they're teenagers. And like you very astutely said, I never really thought about that. You don't really have the school gate stuff, but I suppose you still have friends that have teens, so you can talk with them. If I have something really important to say, I like it when um, the parent is distracted in the sense that for example they could be doing some ironing or doing some cooking or even driving it's because you're distracted so like adults be like oh why are you you know telling me this really you know important thing about like maybe like mental health or something that you've really been needing to tell them right now like I'm really busy I'm in the middle of something and you might be thinking why are they telling me now it's because you're doing it then it's because you're distracted. It means that the attention's like taking off you. If you sat down with them like, oh, at 5.30, I'd like to have a meeting with you too. It just puts so much pressure on you and makes it so you, you feel, it feels less natural and less casual. If the parent does not react the way that you wanted them to, like, there's not gonna be this awkward silence because they're in the middle of doing something anyway, or you can just sort of walk away. <laughs> Is there anything useful we can say to parents who might feel they're overreacting to something? When I do that, I try and take myself away and I think, what's this about? What can we say to parents who need help with working out what they're really concerned about? I think that's what you've just said is a great technique is literally to physically remove yourself from the situation so that you actually go out of the room and you say something like, I just need a minute to think about this or I'm just going to get a coffee, anything, take yourself away and then think, why am I so wound up by this? That is what we call spur of the moment or in the moment decisions. And that's quite hard because by that time, your amygdala and your vigilant systems are now whirring around and you're beginning to feel more anxious. So it's hard to think when someone is shouting or being horrible, saying ghastly things to you. It's really difficult to think straight at that point. So preparation, if you like beforehand, the first thing I would do, very simple, if you have a partner, I would say to the partner, tell me about you as a teenager. Just tell each other the stories. Say, my parents were like this and this and this, I did this and this, you know, it was, it was awful or it was great or they didn't really bother or I never saw my dad, whatever. Just tell each other the, the rules in your house because 99% of the time they're different. So the first thing is to just have that conversation. If you don't have a partner, do it with a friend. 
just say, I've been thinking, my Charlie's now 13, and makes me think about when I was 13, just say it out loud. So as soon as you can begin to talk about it, you, you start to think, oh, yeah, actually, I remember now, my dad used to say this, or my mum used to say this. And, and the illumination that comes out of that, which, I mean, you can go to therapy if you want to, but you can do it by just talking to your friends or anybody, is very, I think that's very helpful in realising where you're coming from. If you want to, if you have an older teenager, you can say, I'm, I'm finding this quite hard because my dad never let me do this, but actually I can see the argument for you doing it. So you even share it with your teenager. So it's a little bit more above board. There's nothing like talking and transparency for the death of projections. You can always go backwards. You can always go back and say, last night I was really upset and I said this and this. I think I, I went over the top there a bit. Explain to me again what happened. Let's have another go. So you're modelling to your child that actually you can... Uh, review things and repair things I mean repair isn't that a fabulous word it's so important I mean you must hear this all the time where people say you know my mum did this did that because I do get things wrong and sometimes I say you know yesterday this happened and I'm really sorry and you're absolutely right what you're doing is teaching them how to be and I think that's really powerful Rachel um if someone's listened to this and say you know this all sounds really great but it all sounds really kind of you know, I don't have a teen like that. My teen is really difficult and I don't know what to do next. Do we have any words of support for those people? Just on a piece of paper, write down or sketch out in a, in a picture, if you like, of what is affecting my teen's life at the moment. So, so what's going on? Uh, is, it, is, it that, is it work at school? Is it friends? Is it there's changes in the family? Is there, you know, is it their physical changes? How many things are they dealing with at the moment? So that you get the big picture. The next thing is just to realise what effect they're having on you and to just own that, say, well, I'm quite scared, actually, or I feel so belittled by this person. Is that just them or does that reawaken things before? You know, teenagers can really, they're experts in raking up the worst bits of your personal experience. So we've got to somehow distinguish our own pain from their pain. And then I think... That, you know, it sounds really, really difficult. And you're not getting anywhere. And then the next step, I guess, is to get some help, either by talking, you know, you, you find a person to talk to or do it just on a helpline or or look up stuff like Young Minds. You know, Young Minds is pretty amazing, I'd say, on uh, on on very practical help. I think AnnaFroid.org has really got some great suggestions, lots of lots and lots of things that actually you can look at, your team can look at. And when should you worry that... It's more than just someone being a, in inverted commas, moody teen. What are things to look for? I think the things we're looking for most commonly are going to be manifestations of what I've called clinically depression or anxiety, extreme anxiety. And depression, we need to look out for things like low mood. And that might mean they're very silent. They withdraw from things they would have previously enjoyed can't be bothered to see friends the other thing I, I always highlight is that in teenagers I think depression can sometimes look like irritability or argumentativeness and that isn't spotted as low mood by a parent you just think I have a difficult teenager here but what happens again it's the amygdala so a, a low mood and a drop in serotonin means that the that uh, we go into a more fight flight mode there's a rule of thumb. I'm giving you the, the simplest pared down version I could think of, that it's pretty ongoing. 
and you see that they're not themselves. And then I would call my GP. Absolutely. I would just get hold of the GP and I would say to them, look, I might be wrong about this, but I think we need to just go check your health up because it seems like things aren't going so well for you right now. Uh, hopefully do some assessment, which will lead to a, if they feel that you need a referral to child and adolescent psychiatry or mental health teams, that's possible. Or if there's a, and this is a really difficult subject at the moment in the UK, if you need faster help, you might have to think about paying for it because it is often there are delays and there are long queues, unfortunately, for this problem now. So, Rachel, going through all these things and these brain changes, that may sound like a little bit scary, maybe for some people. When do things start to calm down in your experience? Oh, it, isn't this wonderful? It really does calm down. I'd say about 16, 17 is when your adolescent thinks, oh, I know who I am. I like this and I do that and I want to study this and work at that. It is a wonderful moment. And they begin to see that there's, there's a role they can play in the family and more obviously. So I'd, I'd say towards the top end of adolescence, it gets better. I would also really want to reiterate that until you've parented a teenager, you haven't parented a teenager. And it's, it's a first time experience. And don't do it alone. You're not being a rubbish parent. It's just a very challenging time of change. You will be able to get through and there will be mistakes and you will fix them and you will get to know your young person as an adult so that they sort of, it's like this bird image, you know, they fly off, but they come back. It's lovely getting to know them as people. And also mm. they, I find that they can be such a wonderful addition. They can sort of galvanize you. They can help organize things. They bring different subjects and interests and skills to the family and also they can learn to make a really good cup of tea <laughs> absolutely bring the tea i really want to thank child and adolescent psychotherapist rachel melville thomas for that really nourishing conversation i certainly learnt loads i remembered lots of things that i need to remember and i hope you found it useful if you'd like to find out more about rachel her website is rachelmelvillethomas.com and thank you so much to the teenagers for taking part. I was really interested to hear what they said and to include their voices. If you think your child needs help, your first port of call should always be your GP, where they may refer you to the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, also known as CAMS. If you'd like to look for a private child or adolescent psychotherapist, you can go to childpsychotherapy.org.uk. Some great websites to look at are youngminds.org and anafroid.org. The series is produced by Hester Kent. The music is by Toby Dunham and our artwork is by Low Cole. Follow us on social media on Instagram at Pocket Annalisa. And we'd love to hear your suggestions for topics you'd like us to discuss on future podcasts. Please email us at conversationswithanalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed and benefited from today's episode, do please share it with someone else you think might find it useful. And it would mean a lot to us if you could give us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening and do join us again. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.